0: Hi, I'm your host, Mo Litsky, and the CEO of Prime Quadrant. You're about to hear a conversation from our Lunches with Legends series, where we connect with some of the most illustrious business and investment leaders around the world. To learn more, check out our website, luncheswithlegends.com. Now, without any further ado, uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our very special guest today, the legendary Roger Martin. Roger has been named uh, the world's number one management thinker by Thinkers50 and is a trusted strategy advisor to the CEOs of the world's largest companies, including Procter & Gamble, Lego, and Ford. Roger is also a professor emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at University of Toronto, where he previously served as an award-winning dean, uh, the academic director of the Michael Lee Chin Family Institute for Corporate Citizenship, and the director of the Martin Prosperity Institute. Business Week named Roger among the most influential designers and invasion gurus in the world, as well as one of the most influential business professors in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the one and only, and my former dean, uh, uh, Roger Martin. Roger, thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, oh, Thank you, Mo, for having me, and thanks for the lovely introduction. That was very nice. <laughs>
0: oh, of course. So, you know, I guess on the topic of your introduction, um, you know, after reading your bio, you um, as a father of five kids, I can't really help but wonder, you know, how do I raise kids like that? So yeah, so maybe besides, if we could start with, besides some of the unique abilities and tenacity and good fortune that you've had uh, and um, all the efforts that you've taken to get here, what do you think it was about your upbringing or maybe the, the culture your parents cultivated that kind of gave you the capacity to be sitting here and being counted among the top management thinkers and leaders over, uh, around the world?
1: That's a good question. My, it's probably luck as much as anything. Interestingly, I was one of five kids too. So there you go. I was number two, uh, two, of, two of five. I often wonder, uh, people people have asked me this sort of question. I often wonder if it wasn't um, the following odd things. So with my odd, odd theory? So I came from a very small town in Southern Ontario. There were seven houses uh, uh, when I was growing up, uh, plus a general store, plus a blacksmith plus a hardware, um, harness shop for, um, for horses, uh, uh, hoofing horses and the like. Um, but it was a small enough thing that, that as a kid, you could kind of get your arms around it and say, this is how kind of my world works.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and I often contrast to somebody who maybe grew up in Manhattan, um, who would as a kid immediately say, wow, this is, this is weird. This is big. I I can't even begin to understand this. Maybe I'll just try and understand my little part of it. And so I always tried to understand whatever I was looking at and say, Mm -hmm. I can get my arms around this. And I guess I had, I had the naivety to think that I could. Um, And so I, I, I wonder if, if that, didn't have something Hmm. uh uh, to do with it um i was was interested like john kenneth galbraith as you may or may not know grew up in a town of about equal size uh more in east southeastern uh uh, ontario uh Hmm. and so i I, and and i knew him a little bit uh um from my days uh days days at harvard and i and he sort of was able to get his arms around big, big issues uh, that other people might have said, "Wow, that's too hard to really understand." And I, won- I kind of wondered if if that uh, that helped me.
0: Who knows? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting one to run a regression analysis. I'm wondering. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe before we get into business, I, I want to talk a little bit on something you've done on the sort of philanthropic, charitable, communal side of things. So. You were the former chair of Tennis Canada, mm. and you—it seemed uh, to be that you pulled off uh, what would ostensibly have been impossible. Like you took and turned a country, uh, Canada. You took Canada from a country that never had a top 25 player into a country that had more rated players under the age of 22 than any other country in the world. Like, could you share with us um, how you achieved that, and and what lessons? Can other leaders draw from the strategy that uh, or approach that you may have employed there? Sure.
1: Um, and, and first of all, you say you thank you for that, but it really was a, a group of of like four people centrally, centrally, Michael Downey, who's still the CEO of the company, um, Jack Graham, uh, who is the chair when we started the transformation and a guy, Tony Ames, who succeeded him as chair. And then I succeeded Tony Ames as as chair. But I think the lessons from it are, it does not matter if you are trailing and you don't have the resources of the companies that are organizations that are, that, that are leading it. it Clever strategy can overcome those, uh, those things, but it has to be choiceful and clever strategy. Right? And so we had no money. We were in, deeply in debt. We only have 500 12-month-a-year uh, tennis courts in Canada because to be 12 months a year, they have to be covered uh, or, or bubbled, uh, bubbled over. And the average county in Florida would have more than 500 because all the, you roll the sand and you can play tennis. So we had, we had no infrastructure, we had no money, we had no history, we had no history uh, really of, of, co- of coaching excellence. Um, and so if you're going to catch up to people who have all the advantages, you got to do it differently. You got to figure out a different way to compete. And that's what I would say to anybody who's trailing, do not try to catch up to your better funded competitors, do it differently. And what we did was create a player development system that took the best of the most organized system on the face of the planet the French. The French Federation has this very, you go, go in as a kid and you have to be in their national training program. You have to follow their rules exactly, or you're, or you're uh, punted out. Uh, and the American system, which is a let a, flower, a thousand flowers bloom, a free market, a thousand flowers bloom. If you start to get really, really good, we'll then shower you with more money than, uh, than God, because we have that. Um, and both of them have their their weaknesses, although both have had historically huge success. I mean, the only other country with historically huge success is Russia, which is make your country so miserable to live in that they all go to Florida and get into the U.S. system. So, <laughs> but they play play for uh, play for uh, uh, Russia. So we we combine those those uh, uh, two approaches, which had a a uh, high discipline on what it took to develop as a tennis player but said as long as you can develop by our objective standards you can you can do it in a flexible way so you know uh, canadians know we've got on the men's side dennis and and uh, uh felix dennis chef of olive and felix uh Aliasim. one was developed mainly in the national tennis center felix one was developed mainly outside the national tennis center that couldn't happen in any other system dennis thinks of himself as a tennis canada guy through and through even though he was trained by his mother off site only came to the t- 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 tennis center you know occasionally and bianca uh, bianca and, and lila fernandez uh, are, are 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 different in the in the in the same the same way so we've done it differently than, uh, than anybody else. And we did a couple of other things that nobody else had done. We hired Bob Brett, the late now passed away, Bob Brett, one of the best tennis coaches in the face of the planet, coach of Boris Becker and Gornie Venecevic and all those guys. And we worked with him and said, we'd like you to do something you've never done before coach under 12s. Hmm. And it's like, and, and it was funny when he showed up at under 12 tournaments like because he's a God or was a God is like, what the hell are you doing here, Bob? You know, you should be, because he was also coaching Marin Seelich, one of the top 10 players at the, at the time you should be at like Wimbledon and whatever, what are you doing here? But he thought it was really cool doing something he'd never done before. Uh, and we needed it because Canada's small and do- doesn't have a tennis culture. We needed one of the best eyes in the world, figuring out, which youngsters had promise. And i remember his eyes lighting up when he saw Bianca Andrescu. Uh, for those of you not tennis players who won the US Open first uh, singles grand, uh, grand champion uh, that Canada's ever produced. And I remember she was maybe 11 or 12 uh, 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 up in Richmond Hill or Thornhill, I forget. Um, and he came back, because I played tennis with Bob every morning with it, he happened to be in, in, in uh, Toronto. And he said, oh, that young girl has got a head on her shoulders, right? So so because he knew how to coach number one players in the world, he could see in 11-year-olds whether they really had the thing or not. Nobody else did that. Nobody else did this combination uh, of, of kind of tight control and, and, and looseness. And, and so we that was our strategy. We were going to do it differently. And that would be my contribution. I mean, my uh, everybody made a contribution. Mine was, we ain't doing it the same. We ain't, right. we ain't trying to catch up with fewer bucks by doing the same things as the leaders. Right. No way. We are going to do it differently. And it's really? Well, what if this doesn't work? And I say, well, what we're doing now sure ain't. So, so there's no there's no big downside uh, to this, and here's the theory that would say say we can uh, we can do it.
0: Yeah. So, and I I could obviously understand the behavioral challenges in doing things very differently, and uh, um, and all the naysayers along the way. But and I've actually watched you do something very similar when I was a student in the MBA program at Broadman, and you know during your tenure you took this school is what was ostensibly a fairly humble school at the beginning. And gave it a global profile. You know, you, I think if I remember the numbers, you almost tripled the number of students, increased mm-hmm. the international enrollment, quadrupled the number of faculty, more importantly, or perhaps most importantly, through the higher rankings, you've made my degree more valuable. you know <laughs> I, I didn't he gave me bragging rights. I didn't know I had. So yes, you know and and you're, you you faculty- maybe recall
1: me speechifying about that and saying to all graduates, here's for every year that I'm dean, I'm going to make your degree. Uh, more valuable. That was my that was my promise. Yep.
0: I recall you saying that, but of course I didn't take you seriously until it happened. So, <laughs> so, so when you think about like what strategic practices specifically or capital allocations tools did you employ what um, in the context of turning around Rotman uh, to to achieve that level of kind of international and global profile. Well again one thing was was again
1: yes we were we were underfunded we had a deficit a tiny budget we were hemorrhaging professors blah 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 all that stuff so and even to local competition like uh, ivy would have had three or four times our 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 revenues was the you know kind of Unchallenged ever number one business school in Canada. In fact, their ad copy was a big gold number one, right. uh, On it. So it wasn't to say we got to catch up. It wasn't to say, let's do what they're doing. It was to say, we're going to do it differently. Um, We are just not going to play the game the way it's being played because that's to our disadvantage. And we're going to aim, you know, I, I said, and and I got roundly mocked. Faculty council mocked me uh, for saying it. I said, I don't care about how we stand in Canada. Uh, we're going to be Canada's only truly globally recognized business school. And they're like, if we could just close the gap with Ivy, so we aren't such an embarrassing amount behind Roger, that, that would be so much better. Uh, and I said, no, no, I, I don't care. Uh, I, I, I just don't. Um, and uh, and and I said we've got to reinvent business education. So there's a new way to think, integrative thinking, design, uh, and we're going to be known as that because people need a reason a specific reason to come to not one of the leading ranked business schools as of today and we've got to lean into this so and we're going to recruit professors in a in a in a different uh in a different way i'm going to manage uh in a different way i had the <laughs> doctrine of relentless utility i said we're just going to be relentlessly useful I'm going to be re- relentlessly useful to the canadian media to alumni uh, uh to uh to the government that, that, uh, we, we serve to university of Toronto. We don't, we are not going to ever know exactly why good things happen to us, but if we're relentlessly useful, they will don't worry. Don't worry about it. So we just did things differently and, and succeeded. And again, if I would have said, our goal is to close the gap with Ivy, we would not have, and we did in less than 10 years, just blew blew by them on the fly. Uh, so that there isn't any question anymore. What's the what's the finest business school in Canada? What's the only one with international thing? And and by the way, I, I'm not so much into beating other people as we raise the bar so that Ivy Schulich are both way better schools now than they were when we started. Why? The bar has been uh, has been uh, raised. But on capital allocation, uh, I'll I'll tell you uh, the the decision. The decision was, I'm going to allocate capital behind winning. Uh, And I was very ruthless on that. If you didn't have a strategy for winning, you got starved uh, at the Rodman School. Um, So, for example, we had a crummy MBA program, executive MBA program. It wasn't doing well; its enrollments were going down. And I said, and I, I mean, gave, and we we hired a an, a, a new uh, uh, MBA director, a wonderful woman named Beatrix Dart. Uh, and I said to Beatrix, um, "We're either going to shut this down, or you're going to make it special." I will support you, and I'll fund making it special. Uh, but if we don't have it be special, we're going to shut it down. She went off, totally redesigned it, made it unique in, in in Canada, and we've we funded it. The strategy area came to me and said, uh, uh, you know, we want to, you know, our, our strategy uh, faculty just isn't isn't very good. We've got a couple of good professors, but it's nowhere in, in the world. We want to make it something good, and here's the person who's going to be our area coordinators are more uh, that's what we call them, uh, they're called chairs, mo- uh, most other places, the chair of, of, of and it's this adjunct professor uh, because, because we researching academics uh, can't spend our time on administration because there aren't that many of us and we got to spend our time on doing research. and so he's gonna he's gonna run the department. And I said, that's, that's totally fine. Um, I'm going to give you no money. <laughs> like no money uh because that's a losing strategy right you need if you i said to to our most senior strategy uh guy if you want to be the head of one of the greatest strategy departments in the world fine because you can recruit people because you are a star he unfortunately is not uh adjunct professor just can't be stars among the 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 Mm -hmm. the, uh, academics just because of the way that world works. And if you come to me with a plan on how you're going to uh, make us one of the best strategy areas in the world, I'll fund you. If you come back with a blah plan that is sort of like, here's how we're going to make our, our strategy department better, you're going to get no money. Mm-hmm. And, and I, was, I was just, there's a bell. He came back with a plan to make us, he, he wanted to make us one of the top three. Uh, and this is Joel Baum, by the way, fantastic man. And, and he did.
0: Yeah.
1: And Joel... Literally did. We're either ranked one, two, or three, depending on who, who you listen to. We wouldn't have been ranked in the top 50, probably not in the top 75 or even 100 when, when Joel uh, started. And we allocated a bunch of capital to him only after he produced a credible plan for doing it, and explain to me how we would recruit, but who we would recruit, how we would build. He would build in this area where we had real strength, and then when we got that, we'd build in other areas. We did the same. Uh, we did the same with uh, accounting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't know if you had while you were there, Jeff Callen, our brilliant guy. We snitched from uh, from NY, uh, NYU, uh, and built a fantastic uh, accounting uh, area around around that. So invest behind winning. Any investment behind catching up, playing is wasted money. It means you don't care about being great.
0: So you know that's that's perhaps a great segue because again, you've you obviously wrote the book with uh, H. G. H- e. Lovely and in terms of, um, and you've advised uh, large public companies like Procter and Gamble, and of course you've also advised you know notable private companies. Can you talk a little bit about? I, I'm sure this concept of investing behind winners is ubiquitous throughout. I think that you probably apply that everywhere. But when you think about the managerial and strategic differences that you witness witnessed between public companies and private companies, what were some of the unique risks or benefits are conferred on one or the other? And, in and, and how does that impact uh, strategy?
1: Sure. Well, I, I am more confident these days about, about private companies and public companies, uh, and, you know, and, uh, um, and I'll give you, i give you, a so Lego is one of the companies I work with, <laughs> just an awesome, awesome company owned by the Christiansen family and the, and the charitable trust they, they, uh, they set up. And I worked with the guy who they had a, cri- a crisis in 2004. And the guy who turned it around is a guy named Jernvig Um, And, and he, he got. Uh, got Lego just humming to a ridiculous uh, e- extent, so much so that for five consecutive years, while the global toy industry was growing at 0%, Lego grew 20%, top line, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%. 20%. Um, and then they had a, quote, bad year where they were projecting 20 uh, and grew 12. And by the way, I'm giving you these numbers, uh, because they actually even though they're a private company, they release their revenue and profit numbers. Uh, so I'm not giving any any anything uh, insight on a private, com- uh, private company. Um, and I remember saying to yearn, so yearn, think about it. If you were a public company, and you would just done in a zero industry 2020 2020 for five straight years your stock price would have been stratospheric right and then when you did a mere 12 again in an industry that in that year also grew at zero percent it's a completely flat flat industry overall and your 12 is included in that flat so the rest of the industry is, is is down the shareholders would have been after your head they've said you you idiot! You moron! Right? You 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 were projecting twenty. Our, our you know a consensus estimate was twenty. You did twelve. What the hell is going on? You should do a major restructuring. You should cut back. Da, 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 da. We we need a new CEO. Right? I mean, literally, because expectations would have been so sky high. Instead, Jaren goes and has uh, a meeting with uh, Kel and Thomas, the, th- the third and fourth generation owner for a couple of hours and said, yeah, we kind of probably got ahead of ourselves and thinking we could just keep doing 20 every year because we had been doing it. And now we got to have a, have a plan to get, uh, you know, to, to do some right sizing and whatever, a couple of hours. And then the Christensen say, yep, makes total sense. And he's back being a CEO not spending his time, you kind of massaging uh, the, the, the capital markets. That just plays out over and over again, right? So, you know, I, I just think the public capital markets, I used to think, or I, I, I still, I, I have this view that between World War II and somewhere around 1995 or 2000, one of America's biggest advantages over the rest of the world was a better capital market. Especially equity markets than the rest of the world, more conducive to growth and building building uh, companies. I now think that the public equity markets in the U.S. are detrimental to corporate growth, uh, and so and and it's been demonstrated too. Like why is why is such a rise in private equity taking companies? Why did Michael Dell take Dell out of the public markets? To do all sorts of things in the public markets wouldn't have let him do, and then return it to the public markets for a fifty billion dollar gain, of which he got twenty five billion uh, billion dollars. I mean, the people are escaping the problematic structure of the of the public markets, and I think we're going to go back to a world that's much more like the twenties and thirties, where you have public companies, tightly controlled public companies where John D. Rockefeller says, if you want, if you want to be along for the ride on standard oil, fine, but it's my company. I'm going to do whatever I damn well, please. You know, you're, you know, uh, I, I nobody's going to take it over because I own 80% of it or 75 or 80, whatever uh, percentage uh, he did. And I watched this too. Like I was a so long, long, long involved in, uh, in, uh, Thompson, um, and uh, if you ask, you know what's the difference between Thompson in 1980 and and Thompson now is in 1980. It was in, in newspapers, uh, textbooks, North Sea oil, uh, uh, and uh, European travel, right? It got out of all of those businesses, and now is has must ha- must have online. uh uh uh, information for professionals Mm -hmm. how the hell do you make that transition the best corporate transition that i can point to Mm -hmm. ken thompson had 53 ish percent of the company the whole time so Mm -hmm. he uh he he was able to provide the cover for management to take that so that kind of semi semi uh, public uh, company or controlled uh, uh, public company, I think is what we're going to have. And that's, of course, as you well know, Mo, that's to the tech industry. Google can do anything it damn well uh, uh, pleases. Uh, Facebook, all, th- all those companies, Dropbox, etc. So that's that's where I think it's having the room to, uh, to carry out a strategy and a strategy vision without people uh, doing nutty things to you along the way.
0: So so, what does that mean, if you could just unpack it a little bit further for private investors or investors in these companies, when we think about value and value creation over the next 10 plus years, 15 plus years, whatever it is, um, especially from where we are at this point in the cycle and you know and where valuations are today, what, what are some of the ramifications of what you believe to be a, a shift for for public markets in the in the years ahead? Well, I
1: I just wouldn't be. I mean, I know there are lots of governance uh, folks who kind of uh, one hate uh, uh, private companies or controlled public companies or dual share uh, companies. Uh, if I were investing a family fortune, I certainly wouldn't be afraid of those. In fact, I would be I would be uh, biasing uh, uh, toward uh, toward those companies. Uh, t- uh, to be honest, uh, now I I think no nobody really kind of in the short term survives bubbles, right? It'll crash. But, you know, it crashed in 2009. And uh, um, I remember, because I know you love you love sick kids, just like I love sick kids. I was on the board of trustees of sick kids during, during that time. And, mm-hmm. you know, who our, the head of our investment committee was. <laughs> Prem Watsa,
0: yeah.
1: summer of 2008, he says, yeah, I'm not liking this, uh, this equity markets at all. Uh, uh, we're, we're getting out. And it was like, what?
0: Yeah.
1: Like endowments don't do And, and, you know, pension funds, endowments, you know, they don't do that. And, and Prem said, no, no, we're going zero. <laughs> and then in March of 2009, he said, we're all in we're going all in and so we made a couple billion we were at the, we were the top performing pension fund i think i think having having sort of the the guts and the intestinal fortitude to uh, to kind of bet in something that you have a rationale for is 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 important. Now you could say we got, we got lucky, but, but I think Brem's Prem, is kind of a genius. Yeah. Um, and, um, um, but of course the market came back, right. And the only people who did badly are people like, unfortunately, our institution, your alma mater and what I was working for, which when everything went haywire, we got out of equities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh and then missed missed the upside and has put us in a pension fund hole uh ever since. So, so I mean, I guess my my I'd be Buffett-esque or uh, watts What s which is let's just assume it's gonna go down unless you believe the economy is 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 gonna crumble. It'll come it'll come back. And the key is to be with companies that can carry out bold strategies. That cannot be proven in advance. You see, this is one of the biggest problems, right, in modern in modern management, right, which is which is we've gotten so analytical. And unfortunately, you were taught, Mo, just like all MBAs are taught, you must make database decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a fundamentally flawed. Uh, concept. And, 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 you know, it's so flawed. The guy, the guy who invented that, you know, guy who invented analytics is named Aristotle. fourth century <laughs> uh, He's the first guy who actually talked about how you can determine the cause of a given effect. That's what he wanted. That's what he wanted to uh, do. What, what, uh, uh, how can you demonstrate what the causes of a given effect? The way you do that is you analyze data. Uh, disappeared in the in the dark ages and re- resurfaced in the, the scientific revolution as the scientific method, but it's the, it's the same. But the guy who invented science, Aristotle, issued a warning that isn't taught anywhere, hmm. literally, isn't taught anywhere. And that is that is, he said, there's a part of the world where things cannot be other than they are, right? So this is the part of the world. I let go of this pen, what happens? Absolutely. It falls. Yep. How about last week? How about the week before? About a thousand years ago. Well, they didn't have pens, yeah. but if I had drop something. Well, we can be pretty sure that in the future it's gonna drop, right? Because it's the part mm-hmm. of the world where things cannot be other than they, uh, they are. And in that part of the world, Aristotle said, essentially, yes, analyze data, because remember, Mo, where is, in what era does 100% of the world's data reside? Answer, the past. We don't have any data about the future. It's all about right. the past. Why? It's because you were also taught in statistics. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you are taught in statistics that if you're going to make inference to the universe from a sample, the sample has to be what? Representative. Meaningful. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you're in the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are, A representative sample of data from the past is going to be representative of the future too. So use this method. Ta-da! Okay. He said there's another part of the world called the part of the world where things can be other than they are. Think about this kind of world. What would we have estimated in 1999 for the number of smartphones on the planet in uh, 2021? answer is probably none because the first blackberry was in 2000 one year later there Mm -hmm. were no smartphones now there are 4.4 billion of them and that's because it's part of the world where things can be other than they are it's the part of the world where where companies put things on the market people adopt habits etc now you can't live without one of one of these and you know what aristotle said in that part of the world yeah do not use my method (laughs) Why? It's because you're wrong, right? If you analyze the past, you will not get it to the uh, the future. So what does this have to do with investing, right? Is investing part of the world where things cannot be other than they are? You're gonna know companies change, habits change, companies wax and wane. It's all about things that can be other than they are. Yet, yet, We've moved to a world where there's more and more analysis applied to what we should do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is one of the greatest American pragmatist philosophers, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, uh, pointed out 100 years ago, no new idea in the history of the world has been proven in advance analytically. (laughs) So if you have a board of directors that says to you. Mo, and you're, you're, you're the CEO of some company and you say, hey, I really want to try this bold new initiative. And the board of directors says, well, Mo, what's your analysis that proves that that will be a good idea? The answer is, if it's anything new, you will not have uh, a compelling analysis. So you won't do it. They won't let you do it. If you own the company and you say, as Prem does, Fairfax essentially, the insurance company, right? You can say, I'm gonna do what I want, or or Warren Buffett, I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I want because I believe that this this is, is gonna happen. This is a good enough uh, uh, bet. So my greatest concern, right, about about Companies and the management thereof is—they've been all taken in by this sort of myth of analysis and objectivity—that is now creating an innovation crisis. Right? What's the difference between—I've been doing this for forty years. CEOs that I would have been sitting with forty years ago and now, forty years ago, they would have been most worried about the CEO and what of the company that was like them. Hmm like John Smale then CEO of Procter and Gamble sitting in Cincinnati would have been worrying about what what the, the Unilever CEO in London was doing or or, or the Colgate CEO in uh, in uh, New York was doing uh, who are CEOs systematically most worried about now
0: shareholders and uh, staff
1: but yes but i well, i would argue then in terms of competition, they're worried about two kids in a garage somewhere oh, yeah. that are disrupting their business, right? That are gonna, and they don't even know who they are, and they won't even uh, see them coming. Literally, that, that is what the CEOs I talked to are. They are not worried about their major competitors. They're worried about somebody they can't see. Why? It's because those kids in the garage don't have to do the analysis to prove to anybody that they've got a great idea for making the future different than the, than the past. And so right. we're getting this, this disruption. People are like, why is all this disruption? Is it because there's so much capital around? Partially, yes, but partially the great disruption is because the big corporations are, putting, are tying one hand behind their back and saying we'll only do things that we can prove to boards of directors are going to be successful, right. and right. you can't.
0: Yeah, you can't. And I mean, presumably that's why anybody that gets to be of some size or consequence, they just go on aggressive acquisition strategies of of all of the disruptors. I mean, that's really their only strategy is um, let's just buy them because we have deep pockets. But let me ask you, just double clicking on that a little bit. So you have um, you mentioned earlier uh, that the public company of the future will be sort of like in the John D. Rockefeller model. Right. So you have a greater controlling stakes. Um, almost operating like a private company in public markets. Um, You know, one of the things a question came in from, you know, from from one of the participants, and again, the question was specifically around the Rogers situation, which Mm -hmm. uh, we're not gonna talk about because I don't wanna get into details, but um, but really how, to what extent is that offset by generally speaking, you have controlling shareholders, usually controlling family, and now you have family dynamics that come into the equation, which you didn't have in a broadly dis- diversified, you know, pool of shareholders and no major controlling shareholder. So now you have family dynamics that could potentially corrupt, you know, and bleed into the business, which we're facing again all the time. And, and so all the participants, a lot of them are families on this call. Also, would be interested in your thoughts on how, how, how do you balance those things? How do you think about those things from a strategy point of view? Sure. And what are the bigger risks in, in the Public markets in the public companies of the future. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. I mean, nothing. Nothing is nothing is risk free. Uh, for for my liking, I'd rather take the challenges of a kind of intergeneral intergenerational family uh, kind of tra- transition than having activist hedge funds come and destroy your company. Right. The activist hedge funds are the hyenas of the of the modern economy. And they just come in and, and and attack, attack things. And CEOs have to worry about what the hedge funds are going to do, what the hedge funds are going to do. So that to me is such a such a threat to strategy that what I do is rather work on intergenerational family transition. You don't have to say anything about the Rogers. Because I, I sense, I sense, uh, I sense that, that that you're you have a, a challenge on that uh, on that front, which I don't equivalent, But I've I've been around that that particular kind of world for 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 long enough to believe that I think a fundamental mistake was made in in the intergenerational shift from the CEO generation to what should be the great shareholder generation, right? So. I I think it is it it is foolish to believe because because what it takes to be a great CEO is such a a kind of a complex Venn diagram of 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 things. Assuming that an offspring will have that is is in my in my view a kind of foolhardy. Now, if one happens to great, but if not if not you should be training the next generation to be awesome owners Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and being an awesome owner, I believe is something that you can be trained up to do. If you're a dutiful and intelligent person who commits to becoming a great owner, you can, but if instead you leave somebody of the next generation thinking that the only legitimate thing to do, the only thing that's fulfilling to do is to be the successor CEO You are just getting down on your hands and knees and begging for trouble Mm because everybody, Mo, you, your five children, Mm -hmm. everybody wants to have a real job and wants to be able to do that well. So if you leave that ambiguous or set somebody up in a job that you haven't prepared them for, right, you're just going to have, you're going to have problems. However, in my observation, if you can have the, the next generation transition to being great owners and as great owners, let management make the kind of bets that your entrepreneurial father or grandfather uh, uh, did, then you're better off than a public company. But I, my observation is, is that is that heirs in these intergenerational families are not given real jobs,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: like and, real clearly defined jobs that they are then trained to be good at.
0: And is there, um, and again, I just wanna go a little deeper here because it yep. gets so relevant to so many of the families uh, on this call. And uh, and I know that you've advised various intergenerational families. Is yep. there any, any mental models or frameworks that you've used for what good ownership means. Um, is there anything that um, any specific tools that you've employed or or case studies that you've seen where exceptional ownership has been um, uh, exhibited, and, and and perhaps even a contrast? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's
1: tricky. I like you have 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 kind of some confidentiality constraints, uh, so the. What what I would say on what is important for for training somebody to be a good owner, it's one is strategy. It's teaching them what strategy is, and I teach teenagers strategy, right? You know, because there's no there's no so that they need to be able to recognize what kind of strategic choices management needs to make, and encourage them to make uh, uh, that they need to understand the business, right? They need to be connected to the customers in the, in the business. So getting kids out to understand, understand what their, what their father or mother's uh, company is doing and why. So immersed enough in the business, but to have a, this owner perspective, right? I do not make, managerial decisions. If you do that, then you're going to get a crummy CEO, right? Mm. As, as, as kind of as simple as that. If the board wants to make decisions in a public company, when boards want to make decisions, they they get crummy CEOs and then 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 they got then they got to keep doing more more and more which you're less equipped to do because they're not there 24, 24 right. 7 So it's teaching them how how to have the kind of dialogue with management that you need to have that is encouraging to management right but uh also uh kind of helps management understand that there is there is a discipline uh, uh to it and um and if if you if you do that if you teach them strategy immerse them in the business and 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 help them with the kind of conversations they need and then give them Real jobs. Are they outgoing? Well, then maybe they need to be the face of the family uh, uh, out there. If they're introverts, don't make them do that because they're going to hate that uh, job. It's getting giving them a job that suits their personality uh, and then equipping them for that job so that they be, can be great at it. That is, that is essential. And I'm surprised at the degree to which it is. It isn't done, yeah. And and, and, and the problem, first, is I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. The problem is, is that that you know, if the co- if the family company is successful, they are insanely rich, right, right, right. And so they've got money to throw around doing destructive things, uh, and and so you know, uh, <laughs> idle hands. <laughs> Have always been, are and will be the devil's workshop, right? So, so you you need to have a job.
0: L- l- you l- need l- to be
1: able to go home at night and say, I did my job well.
0: So I, I want to pick up on this because you know, this I love how you put it, idle hands are the devil's workshop or or the fact that you said earlier, look, everybody wakes up and they want to be have a good job, they want to have a job, they want to do it well. So in with that as the backdrop, how do you make sense? of the scarcity of talent today. Like there's there's lots of jobs. Where did all these people just disappear to? And like, is this a temporary cyclical dislocation, COVID relay, is this the new normal? How do you uh, think about it? I'd love to just even analyze the current situation, but I think even beyond that, what are the implications for strategy and management and capital allocation as a result of, uh, uh, of what we're seeing in uh, with the scarcity of talent today?
1: Yeah. Well, it, it depends what you, it depends what you mean by, by talent. So, so if you're asking sort of employee base, like the middle of the middle of the curve, uh, that's one question. If you're asking about the tail of the distribution, it's, it's, uh, it's another, if we're talking tail of the distribution, the story there is, is much more extraction, right? It's, it's, it's not that we have so much a scarcity of them as talent at the top end of the spectrum has recognized its power and is extracting more for it. So, so you know, it, this, all hap- this all happened in the 70s. In the middle of the 70s, we had a bunch of things happening in, in a bunch of industries. In the movie industry, you had the Raiders of the Lost Ark deal that kind of changed Hollywood kind of for, forever uh, or George Lucas came in and said, you know, uh, um, I got this, I got this, uh, I did star Wars. I got this new franchise. Here's the deal. Uh, you, uh, y- you make the movie and I get 50% of the pre overhead pre marketing gross. <clears> throat> and, throat> and, uh, it was, it was, um, uh, uh, Barry Diller and Michael Eisner at Paramount, who who fell off their chairs and said, "Well, and where are you going to get the money to put up your fifty percent?" And Lucas says, uh, "I'm putting up nothing." <laughs> not a zero and I get 50%. And they said, you're crazy and kicked them out. Then they thought about it and, and realized they did it. That's when two and 20 became uh, popular. Ted Forsman really was a, a forcing yeah. man. That's when, when Peter seats uh, uh, in the uh, uh, major league baseball game, uh, uh, um, uh, brought free agency to bear, and then it then it spread ever. That's when uh, Meckling and Jensen wrote the the article on uh, uh, that uh, let loose stock based compensation. So the seventies was a time when suddenly talent said, you know, we can get a lot more. And I think it's partially because they woke up, uh, and partially because because the world was getting ever more awash in capital. And so now and now talent just says, you need me more than I need you and so I'm going to get a bigger piece of the pie. That phenomenon is going to increase. To me, there's no no uh, uh, stopping on on uh, on that and shareholders, this is one of the things shareholders, anybody with capital, like the families who you, who are who are on this. anybody with capital is going to have to get used to being, you know, held up to a greater extent by talent than in the past. And they're going to have to figure out how to get talent to want to work for, uh, uh, for them. In terms of the middle of the distribution, I, I think the reason we've got labor shortages that, that we currently have is that we've th- that we've had uh, sort of unrealistic suppression of average wages, so much so that, th- and, and then with COVID and people getting checks in the mail, they've all said, and lots of them have said, why work anyway uh, uh, for these the, for these crappy wages? And so there's going to be, a, in my view, a relatively either one-time recalibration of sort of the whole wage scale of of sort of the mass. If you will, undifferentiated, relatively undifferentiated workers, or they're just going to be going to be a, a uh, an acceleration where that's going to grow at faster than GDP for for a few years. As companies, you know, you can see now companies are like advertising on national TV about what a great company they are to work for. Holy smokes! <laughs> I don't know. I've been watching the FedEx ads on this and saying, "Wow!" Because I know because. Procter Gamble, I, I know how much that costs and they're spending an enormous amount just to get people to drive those, those, uh, uh trucks, uh, trucks for them. So mm. we're going to be in a period where all the last 40 years, those wages have been, have been, uh, you know, kind of suppressed, uh, just like the wages of talent were suppressed the studio system. if you want to just take Hollywood, the studio system suppressed wages for talent in Hollywood. Until the mid seventies, and so because it was so suppressed, when it burst, when that dam burst, <laughs> and the dam has burst in my in my view, in terms of of wages for all of those essential worker jobs that that we proved were necessary, and the people in them said, "Holy, hold on, hold on here I am essential." Okay, I am I, I ain't working for nothing anymore.
0: Right. So let let me. Let me uh, go a little deeper on that and what that actually means, again, for people that are allocating capital. So what you're alluding to is, you know, potentially inflationary regime, which we're seeing. We're seeing it partly because of uh, uh, on the human capital side, for sure, labor. We're also seeing it on the supply chain side. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's coinciding with. You know, all time lows in interest rates and the prospect of over the next decade rates going up. That's coinciding with, um, you know, sort of a deglobalization as opposed to globalization. Mm-hmm. It's coinciding with increased tax rates. It's inc- coinciding with a high valuation environment. It's coinciding with a lot of things which seem to suggest considerably lower return expectations for the owners of capital, right? Because, uh, um, Number one is, A, is, would you disagree with, would you have a contra view on that? And, and B, and I think it more, more of greatest interest to um, the, those on, on, on the call here, is how are you thinking about the opportunity set in the years ahead? like Where are meaningful returns going to come from if all of these dynamics and others that we haven't even touched on are, are playing out? Where where are where are returns going to come from and and maybe even more specifically if if you care to share how are you allocating your own uh, investments how are you thinking about your own capital allocation, um, yeah,
1: of- uh, okay so so yes to your thesis so and, in fact I've argued this I argued this uh, almost twenty years ago in a in a HBR article I wrote which is that for most of the twentieth century the there was a battle between Uh, kind of three factors of production, uh, raw materials, labor, and capital. Capital bought raw materials, paid it one time, and then owned it. And so there was just a battle between capital and labor. Uh, Capital was winning until 1935, then the National Labor Relations Act uh, National Labor Relations Board gave labor a bunch of power. It won till 1960, and then capital, capital uh, kind of defeated it. And by 1980, uh, unionization rates in the United States and the private sector were back down to 1911 rates. So, so it won, but it didn't realize that a third, uh, an, another actor was was entering, and that was talent. So, labor bifurcated into into fungible and unique. Uh, uh labor and ever since then labor has been uh, uh, talent has been uh grinding away at the the share of capital capital has kept grinding down labor and has had a lot has, has had a good time doing that for the for the 40 years from the mid 70s uh uh till till recently now, I think that, so that's made up for the fact that talent is is getting a bigger chunk. So talent has been the biggest winner since the mid 70s and is continuing to win big. And
0: capital, at the outsides of the curve, right?
1: At the, yep. at the, at the tail end of the curve, the curve. curve. absolutely. Right? right, and and again, ta- you know, Piketty wrote the, wrote the capital in the 20th century book, uh, French guy, right? who is used to studying Europe, and he was flabbergasted at how the rich in the United States weren't rentiers who were just like owning land and, and whatever. They were, they were highly paid uh, workers, hedge fund guys, investment bankers, uh, you know, consultants, et cetera. He was actually flabbergasted uh, uh, by that. They've won big. Capital has managed to keep their returns uh, uh, decent because they've been extracting it out of labor what's happening now is labor is now fighting, fighting back. And I think, and so, and there's nothing capital is doing that is helping on, on, uh, on talent. So I think you're right in terms of the, the, the next 10 years for, for capital, it's going to be harder, uh, not easier in terms of where, where to, to, to make, uh, to make money um, you know, you uh, and you ask about my investments. Um, my all of my money is in either early stage uh, private uh, investment, mainly some uh, realm of of uh, tech, but not not exclusively, uh, and cash. I own no public equities. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't believe in it. Um, and I believe that my expertise is in doing the playing to win on, on company and on tiny startups and asking who's going to, who's going to succeed. And, and, and I, I, I do, I do well on that front. I, I would say that, uh, uh, that the right, the, the, the time when your family's capital is most valuable is in the earliest stages when it's the difference between we can build a business or not. Your family's capital is of no great value to Procter and Gamble or IBM or whatever. It's just another dollar and we can get a dollar from, from anybody. And we don't actually need that many dollars because we're not growing, growing uh, kind of all that, all that fast. So if I'm an owner of capital, I want that capital to be smart, right? It can't just be, that's just, you know, invest index it kind of, you know, I kind of be smart and, uh, be able to be able to invest in, in the people who need your capital, uh, kind of most, this is one of the other things of the modern economy is we're getting, we're getting sort of much more sort of true cost discovery. So big companies are beating the hell out of their suppliers and saying, We actually know the true cost to serve us uh, and we'll tell you, we'll, we'll, we'll give you those costs and a few extra, extra bucks. Right. And so when a, when a big company says, I want capital, they're just not going to pay much for it because they kind of, they got lots of people supplying it, whatever. So you want to find people who actually need and would value your capital and don't think that it's costing them much even though it actually is when you when 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 you give equity to somebody in a an explosively growing startup right that's why these all these incubators who say we'll give you rent in exchange for equity you know for the successful companies that's rent is a hundred thousand per square foot is what it turns out to it's what it turns out to be so that was not a great a great deal for that free space but they don't care because if it's the difference between having a company or not, they'll uh, they'll pay it. So I would I would I would be building capability ability to uh, to invest in in that uh, that end of the market.
0: Fascinating. So I know we're we're sort of approaching, and I, um, are, unfortunately, this has been such a fun conversation. I think we could go for another two hours easily, um, so. but uh, but maybe if I could squeeze in one last question. Sure, it's going to be an open question. Um, we've talked a little bit about the difference between you know being better uh, owners than than CEOs or managers. Um, if you think about, is there any additional advice that you might have? For affluent intergenerational families and family offices, particularly given uh, the environment in which we're in, which is you know considerable amounts of liquidity, uh, the transaction environment is very rich. A lot of businesses are are, are, are changing hands. They're supposed to be, you know, tens and trillions of dollars transitioning to to uh, sort of the yeah. rising generation. Any any particular advice? Lessons learned? Things that. Uh, that if your family was in that situation, you would have wished somebody shared with them, with you? Sure. Well, one, one is, one is
1: for a wealthy family, it is super important for every child to feel they have a real job. Um, And that may sound trite, but, but uh, the, the worst performing families that I've been uh, uh, involved in or the worst performing kids of the families, you could not identify a job that the rich kid had been given. And so what happens when uh, when a rich kid is not given a job, a job of responsibility, a job that's difficult, but not too, too difficult, they will make one up. And that's often being a playboy or a playgirl or a, you know, a, 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 or, or whatever. Um, and so, so this may sound trite, I don't know, but it, it, it is think really carefully about what job you'd want them to have. And the job might be, you know, we care about sustainability. I want you as the daughter or the son that has got great interest in sustain- sustainability to be on our investment committee, kind of ensuring that we take into account sustainability enough. That's a real job. You got to get good. you got to get understand what that means to, to, to make investment choices on that. you got to get to know the people in the in the business. you'll have a real job. Now that might be a, a kind of a one day a week job and you, four days a week you're you're uh, you know doing doing something else, but at least that keeps you in the family business if you will having a real job in it and if you let people have no real job in the family business it it all will just go to hell in the handbasket
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean it just yeah. it just it just will um and, and let me ask you something because i'm sorry i said it was gonna be the last question but no that's no, okay gonna I'm, piggyback I'm on this, if it just uh because i'm curious you've given so many people incredible advice over the years um what has been the greatest piece of advice you've gotten uh, in, in, uh, in your career? And whether it's from a mentor, or a colleague, uh, or anyone else, what stands out as, as most impactful for you? I was given a piece of advice by a, a guy
1: I didn't actually like very much. Um, <laughs> and so, so in some sense, it's a good, good kudo, uh, kudo to him. He and I fought more than anything else, but um, I, was, I was a young consultant at the time, and I was uh, and the the senior partner in the firm I was in for a couple of years before we did the monitor monitor thing, um, saw what I was working on on a project I was working for him on a project, saw what was I was working on, and and, and came, you know, he just walked by my desk and, said, well, what, what are you doing?" I said, da, 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 da. And he said, hmm, "You started with the easiest thing." <laughs> and I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well." There's a bunch of things we need to do in the project. And that looks like the easiest thing. And I thought about it a little and and maybe it wasn't the easiest thing, but it was certainly in the bottom half of, of the difficulty spectrum. And he said, you know, Roger, you should just think about waking up every morning and doing the hardest thing first. (laughs) That was the best piece of advice. That I've probably uh, ever gotten, uh, and and I take it to heart. I give it as advice to to others. anybody can, anybody with half a brain can can wake up in the morning and say, "Here are the ten tasks I have, from hardest to easiest." Less successful people start with number ten and work their way up. More successful people start with number one and work their way down. It's kind mm-hmm. of kind of not too not too complicated, uh, and uh, and the reason is when you work on number one actually you find out that four and seven were actually sub-segments of one and they go away. Right. Right. And you have right. kind of le- leverage, leverage, uh, kind of on them. And so your, know, your problems go away. If you're working on number 10, all it solves is number 10 and the other nine just get worse. And so the next morning you wake up with more, with more problems.
0: Roger, that was fantastic. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your incredible insights with us. And I I really can't tell you how much we appreciate your generosity of time and wisdom and certainly hope we can do it again soon.
1: Absolutely, I would. I would. You did such a good job of figuring out a bunch of questions uh, to ask Mo. I would be happy to do it again. And I am, as you know, uh, I am equally interested in the causes that you're you're supporting. So I hope the families, if the families enjoyed this, please give generously to those to those pediatric uh, 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 causes.
0: Thank you for joining us today, we are grateful to each of you and to each of the generous sponsors that made today's program a reality. As a reminder, 100% of the proceeds from Lunches with Legends supports pediatric mental health, improving the lives of children and families in our communities. If you haven't already, please consider donating and supporting our efforts by visiting luncheswithlegends.com. Finally. To get exclusive access to our family office events and our annual conference, make sure to subscribe to our mailing list on the Prime Quadrant website, which you can access by visiting primequadrant.com.